It is essential that no, no one is forbidden to look at flowers. I'm, I skipped several paragraphs. I mean, look how much I've skipped all of this. So I, I, and here is what I'm translating. So I can't really show, share with you the, the real joy of this text as it should be. It is essential that no one is forbidden to look at flowers and plants and to walk around in the greenery and to breathe in, and to breathe in the air. All of this is allowed unless he or she, he should say, extends his or her hands towards it. In other words, you can walk around, you can smell the flowers, but don't start plucking them. If you didn't know, it's not Islamic to kill flowers just for the purpose of killing flowers. But anyway, that's, that's environmental law, that's something else. But if he touches as much as a single seed without paying its due, then he has committed something that is not allowed and he has eaten out of what is forbidden. So it is when conversing with female, with female, well, he, he, he translates it as female entertainers, which... <laughs> so it is with conversing with women, joking with them, shaking their hands and looking at them. And so on. Iqiyan does mean um, entertainers, but it, it, in eloquence, you, you can, ref, it's, it's, a, it's a term of uh, praise. It's like saying the fair lady, my fair lady. So it's uh, the same type of thing. So he says, this is the same as conversing with them and joking with them. Incidentally, jo uh, now, and shaking their hands. And for those of you surprised, there are Islamic schools that say shaking hands is not haram. And so on. As long as no haram is forbidden. I think that's enough from a No haram is done. No haram, as long as no haram is committed, I'm sorry. Okay, the Risala goes on and on and on. It's about 50, 60 pages. So here is Azrahas. So we know from this that the discourse existed not only in the first age. Of course, Azrahas is responding to a reality that is before him. And he is very upset about something and he is responding to this something. And he is addressing this problem and debating with those that he thinks are denying women the rights. Now, if I would have had my manuscripts, I would have been able to show you the same debate in the 5th century and the 7th century, but made by women this time. Now, the women do not, in fact, one of the, the 7th century manuscript, she says that, she doesn't like to shake the hands of men because they're often dirty. Uh, they, they, they often don't wash their hands and they're dirty. So, but she argues that basically it's, it's a counter argument of and you see in the markets 
that they never know what to buy and what to not buy and you can't tell them to go buy anything from the market and they will never do it right and on what basis do they say then that we are this and that and so there is a discourse that is going on hmm? yeah talk to me no that on what basis are they men saying that we are inadequate or something like that so what the important point here is not again I emphasize is not the fact that Islam, and I emphasize this because I hate the fact, and in, with my students, anyone that does that gets an automatic F. I mean, I fail them. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. This is not an argument that Islam liberated women and always treated them with dignity and honor and so on. This is an argument that the discourse existed. That the roots of an Islamic feminist discourse existed in Islamic history, not the feminist neo-colonial discourse that exists in the modern age. When a student comes, and I and I so often, when I when the university, I mean I, I don't teach on a regular basis. I teach basically on semester and semester basis. When the university asks me to teach a case and we deal with this area, and I say. Very simple question. What was the point of assigning such and such and such and such? And a student who is usually a Muslim, non-Muslims will say, well, such and such and such. But, you know, every once in a while you get some Muslim undergraduate who, you know, hooray, hooray, and they, then they write, well, it's to prove that Islam liberated women and that Allah did this and Allah did And he thinks because I'm a Muslim, I'm going to say, yes, brother, I love you. And here, hey, I give him an F. <laughs> And I've had a lot of Muslims come and say, how could you do this to us? And I've said, if a non-Muslim said the same argument, I give them an F. And this is exactly what the response deserves. So, let's now go back to the Khawarij and the woman who led prayer. Who conquered the town and led prayer. Now, is she a wacko? Well, the Khawarij was sort of semi-crazy anyway, right? But I say that again, of course, tongue-in-cheek. Because the Khawarij became the Ibadiyya. And the Ibadiyya produced a fascinating jurisprudential legacy. Well, I can't resist, I'm sorry. Among them, Al-Musannaf, Minhaj al-Talibin, Mawsu'at al-Shari'a. So the Khawarij, in fact, produced a whole jurisprudential tradition. And in the, in the jurisprudential tradition of the Ibadiyya, the Khawarij sect, in fact, they say that women can lead prayer, can be a judge, and be a Khalifa. Now, we all know that they rebelled against Imam Ali. And... I think they were idiotic. But they also rebelled against Muawiyah. So they probably were not as idiotic as, as one would seem. But we also know that they went around killing a lot of Muslims because they considered them kuffar. So on the other hand, they were rather idiotic. But again, they seem to have, by the 3rd and 4th century, moderated their tendencies quite a bit and learned how to live with others without without murder, basically. 
So, and they produce quite a respectable legal genere. Now, let us look at a very interesting point. When Islamic jurisprudence arose, there were schools of Islamic jurisprudence that arose in Medina, in Basra, in Baghdad, in Damascus, in Mecca. There was a Cairo school. The Mecca school became irrelevant and sort of died off. The Medina school became prominent and eventually became the Maliki school. The Basra school predominated and eventually became the Hanafi school. And the Damascus school, the school of Al-Awza'i, eventually died off and became extinct. Now, Imam al-Shafi was all over. He was in Damascus, he was in Egypt, and he was in Medina. That's not the point. The point is that you had several localities producing Islamic law, thinking about Islamic law. In these localities, several schools of jurisprudence arose. Al-Awza'i, for example, who was in Damascus, and who is one of the most prominent, died off. Al-Zahiriya, a school that is one of the most prominent, died off. The earliest school that became established was the Ja'fariya. That was the earliest school. And Ja'fariya, Imam Ja'far al-Sadiq, taught Imam Malik. And then the Malikiyya became, and the Hanafiyya became the, two, the, 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 the second two established schools. In other words, Hanafiyya and Malikiyya established themselves pretty much at the same time. Then, after that, Shafi'iyya established itself, Imam al-Shafi'i. And then, Al-Hanbaliyya established itself. But what is really important to note is that this was not an automatic process. This was an intense process of dialogue among the different schools of thought. And I'm going to say this again tomorrow because I know some of the people are going to be here tomorrow. I mean, it's not the same thing. So, we had several schools. The school of Imam, the school of Abu Sufyan al-Thawri, the school of Ibn Abi Thawr, the school of Al-Awza'i. In fact, you know what? Um, no, I'll do this for tomorrow. Remind me tomorrow to look up the names of 30 different schools. Okay. Tomorrow, inshallah, I can probably recite about, I don't promise you 30, but I promise you between 15 and 30. Of different schools, and each of them was in many ways equal to the, Hanbalis, the Hanafi school, the Hanbali school, the Maliki school, the Shafi school. In other words, Al-Awza'i was a contemporary of the students of Abu Hanifa, and there was common debates among them, the, the famous Radda ala Siyar Al-Awza'i. And one of the most established schools was the Tabari, the school of Tabari. For your information, the Hanbali school nearly died out. The Zahiri school, which was the most literalist and conservative school, died out. And it died out primarily because of its conservatism. The Hanbali school nearly died out. 
except for the fact that Allah blessed them with Ibn Qudama, who wrote a book called Al-Mughni. And Al-Mughni literally saved the Hanbali school from extinction because it was such a brilliant book that it, it brought the Hanbali school back to the, to the fore again. At any case, all of that is sort of for my own entertainment because I love this stuff. Now, Well, I want to address it from a different perspective, though. Now, all of this, I'm trying to establish the grounds, the background, to make a point. Like, oh, I hope. That when you imagine in the first century Hijra, the second century Hijra, about by, by a simple count, about 150 different schools. They start fettering out, not because some of them are inferior to others, but because of various socio-economic circumstances, as well as um, um, historical accidents. So, for example, in Awza'i, it just so happened that he was in Damascus at the time. And it just so happened that Damascus was not a center of commerce as Baghdad and Basra were. The Hanafis were in Baghdad and Basra. And consequently, the Hanafis became established and Al-Awza'i didn't. The Meccan school, the Fuqaha in Mecca, Mecca did not become as important as Medina after the Khilafah, uh, uh, um, after the, the Khilafah moved. And consequently, the Meccan schools died off. But the Medinan schools in the forms of Al-Anas ibn Malik lived. Now the interesting thing about the Tabari was that the Tabari, I would say, the equivalent in terms of his jurisprudential capacity, definitely the equal or the match to Imam al-Shafi himself. So if a Tabari through an accident of history, that school did not die off, there would have been Tabaris around, followers of a Tabari here. And there would have been followers of a Thawriya, and followers of Al-Awza'iyya, and so on. Okay, so wh why am I making, why am I going on and on about this? Because, Al-Imam Abi Thawr, Al-Imam Abi Thawr rules, who is one of these early Muslim schools, Assalamu alaikum. Imam Abi Thawr, who is one of these early Muslim schools, rules that a woman can lead man in prayer without, without limits, without limitations. Jawaz Imamat al-Mar'a lil-Nisa wal-Rijal ala al-Itlaq. But he says, in leading the prayer, she stands behind the man. 
leads the prayer from behind the line. Because the illa, for where she stands, is not her superiority or inferiority. It is the fact of her modesty. And consequently, if modesty is the problem, then she can lead prayer from behind the lines, and that's soft. And he based it... No, no, uh, no, never go ahead of the imam means that you never, you, you never, like, do sujood before the imam hits the floor. A good question, but the 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 about the point about never go ahead of the imam is not it's not a central one. Other words, that some fuqaha said it, but it's not. What? Yeah, but I mean the the, the point is is that even the point about never going ahead of the imam, the only people who said that your prayer would be negated if you if your head touches the floor before the imam are the hanbalis. Other than that, no one else said that. Why are you standing up? Oh, okay. All right. Now, and he relies on the following hadith. Now, where is my... Where is my... Uh, where is Usama? Oh, no, this is not Usama. This is uh, Mu'nis. Where is Mu'nis? This is a translation of the accomplished scholar Mu'nis. Um, and he relies on the following evidence. The narration of Abdul Rahman ibn Ibn Khalad on Umm Waraqa. So in other words, the hadith is related from what? Umm Waraqa. Umm Waraqa is a woman. Yeah. And she relates the following hadith. That the Prophet ﷺ used to visit her in her home. Okay, yeah. God read from the translation. In the course of a long hadith, the Prophet ﷺ used to visit her, Umm Waraka, in her house. Is that a lot? Mixing? Anyway, and he had someone give azan for her. Well, yeah, he, he used to basically have someone. Anyway, and he, and, and he, the Prophet again, commanded her to lead her household in her prayers. So he commanded her to lead prayer in her home. And Abdul Rahman said, I saw that she led the Mu'addin, the man that was doing the Azan, in prayer. And he was an old man. So what is apparent from this is that she used to lead her Mu'addin, which indicates the permissibility of women leading men in prayer. Second, the general hadith, the generality of the hadith, a group should be led by the most versed among them in the Qur'an. وَبِعُمُومْ قَوْلِهِ Not in the Qur'an, alayhi salam, meaning that it's a hadith. 
ان الله قال ويؤم القوم اقراهم لكتاب الله دي دي well actually no he's right the, 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 which which is the most versed among them in the Quran most knowledgeable in the Quran yeah. yeah that it is that it is general and not restricted to men which means that it includes men and women in other words the hadith that says people should be led by that who is most knowledgeable it says people the ummu qawm it doesn't say men or women And three, yeah. And whoever can be led by a man can also be an imam to the man. In other words, there is a qaida that says, if you are allowed to be led by someone then you are also allowed to lead that someone in prayer. This is a qaida. So, uh, Imam Abi Thawr says, well, if they can be led, then they can lead. This is a qaida we have from the Prophet. We have no restrictions. Now, here is the part that you won't like. And also, by analogy to the status of the slave, since it is permissible for a slave to lead free men in prayer, logically, women should be allowed to lead men as well, since the status of women is superior to that of a slave. Since a slave can be killed avenging the death of a woman, but a woman cannot be killed avenging the death of a slave. So in other words, he is using a deductive process of reasoning. And this is, by the way, a good translation of that. That the status of a slave, the slave can lead free men in prayer. A slave is inferior to st in status to women. Why? Because if a woman kills a slave, she cannot be killed. But a slave kills a woman, the slave can be killed. Consequently, how can we allow that who is inferior in status to lead, but that who is superior in status not to lead. This is the opinion of Abu Thawr. Abu Thawr becomes, it's a school of thought that dies off. It's 10, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Abu Thawr, it's a school that dies off. And Abu Thawr is joined in this opinion by no one less than Al-Tabari. Al-Imam Al-Tabari. Now, Imam Al-Tabari is extremely important. Number one, he wrote a tafsir on the Quran, a very famous tafsir, tafsir Al-Tabari. Number two, he wrote Tariq Al-Tabari. And number three, he wrote several books of fiqh and hadith. But none of them survived. And you know why none of them survived? Because Imam Al-Tabari, who was quite controversial in his time in asserting in his discourse not only about women but about several other issues one of them was women was opposed by the Hanbalis and the Hanbalis finally 
not that I have anything against the Hanbalis. I, I put a disclaimer that I have anything against the Hanbalis. But that in fact, the historical fact of the matter is the Hanbalis then raided his home, killed him, burned his house, and started a purge where they burned his books. The only two books that survived from an Imam al-Tabari is his history and his, uh, his tarikh, his history, and his tafsir. All his works on fiqh died off. Now, Imam al-Tabari had more followers in the third Islamic century than the Hanbalis and the Hanafis and the Malikis. Combined. The, it, it was, it, it was, it could, it, the historical circumstances where he was not a very diplomatic fellow. In other words, he offended too many princes and was rather, like Ibn Hazm, um, was rather a loose tongue. And consequently, his students managed to save only these two books and that's a miracle, believe me, because the tafsir is huge and the tarikh is huge. But it was made a point, and he was dispersed only, by the way, in the Damascus, Baghdad, and Arabia. As far as we can tell, he never reached Egypt. And the only reason that his tarikh and tafsir survived is because copies of his tarikh and tafsir reached Egypt. And in Egypt, they didn't care. I mean, to them, Tabari was, who cared? So that's the only reason it survived. And in fact, the manuscripts of his tarikh and tafsir is in Egypt. But the material that was around Baghdad and Damascus was, was pretty much uh, collected and destroyed. Now, we have evidence. Now, someone told me this. I mean, jurist told me this. That when he was in Damascus, he saw a manuscript of his book on fiqh. And he swears on the life of his children that it's there. Now... I am willing to someday take a trip to Damascus and search it, and if it's true, then it must be edited and published. So, we, in other words, we don't know. But anyway, the Imam al-Tabari's school eventually dies. So, now that just by the sheer numbers of people we lost, I have proven that this, in fact, is to be quite a demanding lecture and I believe that anything demanding has to be tedious and has to be exhausting. Without exhaustion, you don't learn anything. Anything that entertains you is probably not good for you. Anything that you feel exhilarated as you are absorbing is probably not a good idea. I am one of these people who very much believes in suffering. Now, let us finally, I will get to one more Islamic discourse. So you see the other side of the coin. And then I'm going to get to the modern discourse and then I'm going to end it except for anyone who has questions. I'm available if you're still conscious. I, I tend to... Uh, almost sort of keeps me with a tremendous amount of energy until the class finishes and then I collapse. Okay, so...
Now, how many of you know Ibn Taymiyyah? <laughs> Anyone, any friends of his here? Well, you know, it's, uh, well, anyway, they don't, I don't need to scare you more than, now, didn't someone translate Ibn Taymiyyah for you? Okay, hold on. Ibn Hayyan al-Tawheedi. Didn't we give it to uh, Yasser? The Book of Entertainment. No, I don't want the Book of Entertainment. Qayyim al Ah, yeah, okay. Now, here's a fatwa. Listen to the fatwa carefully. Can't, I, I mean, it's, it's a shame that uh, uh, even if I have to say so, um, give me, I mean, I will take a copy of this lecture and just transcribe it, and I think my article is done. <laughs> so it's very good. I'm, I'm happy uh, we, we're doing this. <laughs> huh? Well, only jihad. I'm, I'm not grateful for anyone else. Um, okay, here's a fatwa by Ibn Taymiyyah. Now, Ibn Taymiyyah is is quite late. He's in the 6th, uh, 7th century Islamic. So he is asked the following question. If if a man is alone with a woman and she refuses to have intercourse with and if a man is alone with a woman and she refuses to have intercourse with him, then consequently we know that her right to the mah has not been established in the, in the mezhab of Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal. And such the said Qadi Abi Ya'la wa Abi Barakat and others and so on, so on, so on now it says and if she acknowledges that she has forbidden him intercourse with her then they are, they are agreed that she does not have a claim to her mahr and he does not owe her support as long as she remains in that state if she hates him and desires someone else, i.e. for marriage, then she should ransom him. Ransom? <laughs> then she should earn her liberty, not ransom, by agreeing to pay back part of the mahr if she in fact received it. What can we sort of deduct from the statement? What would seem to be a reasonable deduction from that statement? <coughs> well, yeah, I said the fatwa, but um, I was wrong. It, because it says in book of, books of fatwa. Yeah.
It is essential. Yeah, but that's too legal. On the money. On the money. We can deduce from that that she can refuse. She doesn't get the mama. Okay, now. Now notice here, he says that Malik was Shafi'i wa Abu Hanifa. All of them agreed on that point. Agreed on what? That means her non-consensual sex is not allowed, even in marriage. Agreed on what point? point? Is it the mahr point or the non-consensual sex point? The point. Okay, maybe you'll figure it out in this. This, this is a real fact, then. Iman Ibn Taymiyyah was asked. Iman. Imam Ibn Taymiyyah was asked, Imam married a woman and he wrote a book on her and he paid her the mahr completely and a part of it remained unpaid. And then he asked her to come in his house so he can have intercourse with her. So she refused and she went to her aunt, and her aunt hit her. And the, and the question is, can we force her to go to her man's house for the khul? The khul means intercourse. And force her aunt to surrender her. Ibn Taymiyyah says, she does not have the right to refuse intercourse. And this is by the agreement of all the imma, and her aunt cannot protect her, and no one other than her aunt can protect her, and in fact her aunt should be punished by ta'zir for, for, for preventing her from doing her wajib, and her aunt should be forced to surrender her to her husband. What? Oh, okay. Basically, is this? A man comes to Ibn Taymiyyah and says, "A man wrote Kataba Kitabu. He married this woman. He paid her mah, except for a part that remained unpaid." Now, then she refused intercourse. She refused to consummate the marriage, in other words. I, I don't know why I got onto that word, consummate. Upon refusal to consummate the marriage, she left and hid in her aunt's house. Can we force her aunt to surrender her to her husband, and can she be forced to consummate the marriage? And Ibn Taymiyyah says, Yes, she can be forced to she can be forced to surrender to her husband, where he would consummate the marriage, and her aunt 
must be forced to surrender her and her aunt must be punished for hiding her. So the previous thing was about <coughs> No, can't be because Tamara is not She gives the mahar back and nothing happens, right? Yeah. And now they're saying if she refuses, then you can force her yeah, to go back. So what's going on? Consummation is part of the marriage contract, essentially. Yeah. So that has to be abided by. Well, but the first one says if she refuses intercourse, she can't be forced, and all you have to do is just give the mahar back. And the marriage is annulled. It's an annulment. If consummation is not achieved, then the marriage is annulled. Yeah, but here he's asked, what if there is a contract? You do the contract, but since she refuses consummation, can we force her? Even though she hasn't received the full mahr. And he says yes. And he says all the imma agree on this. Okay, so how do you reconcile that with the first part? The first part also considered them married. Huh? The first, the first part should be like one year in the marriage. But if you said that it was a no, you know, she can say no. Hold on. Didn't you say that in the first part, the woman could say no, thank you, and marriage would give the matter, and the marriage would be annulled? Yes, and then she would return the mah, right? In the scenario number one, okay, let's do it again. Scenario number one, woman A marries man B. Man B pays her part of the mah, and then she refuses to consummate. And in fact, in the first scenario, he says she refuses intercourse. I mean, he is very explicit. What should happen then? He said, well, she gives them back the mahra, no problem. And all the imma agree on that. So they're still married? No. No. It, 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 she returns the mahra and the contract is over. It's annulled. Scenario number two, woman A marries what man B. He pays her the mahra, but not all of it. But then she runs away and hides at her aunt's house. And he is asked, can we force her to consummate the marriage? And he says, yes. So there's a contradiction. <laughs> Unless there's a difference between refusing <coughs> well, sex after you've been married for a while and refusing sex for the first time. Both of them are first-timers. Oh, the first scenario was a first-timer too? Both of them are first-timers. Don't match. Or are we, or do they match and we're trying to... Uh, this is what I'm going to do 
for Saturday or Sunday. I mean, the people who stuck this long is sort of unfair. The people who left early is the ones that I should sort of dump on them. But this is what I'm going to be doing, basically giving you puzzles to solve. Okay, fine. There is a contradiction, but then what is going on? So, um, is he is he just simply stupid? No, that's what I'm trying to figure out. It's like, is there a law that that is somehow inherent in the first example that we had that still does follow through in the second example, making <coughs> the second what the, what the guy said legal? Making it saying like, okay, that's right of him to say, yes, force that woman to go back. Is there a law that we're looking for like that? Or are we just seeing that these are just contradicting each other? Not a law, by the way, but I mean... You're saying, is there some legal reason? No, no, no. Sorry. Law, I mean, I mean like... Like... Regulation. Yeah, like a... Yeah, is there there a legal reason for the distinction? Is there... Right? What is the basis of the law? Yeah, I guess what I meant by law was just a a continuous thought. I mean, is there is there a um, is there a truth? Well, no, it's like like a, just like a physics law which like applies. Kasha. No, uh, one thing. In some case, has a woman given back her mahar voluntarily, or hasn't she? In the second case? Well, that's a very good question. Because you, you, you said in the first case... If she hasn't, then she doesn't have the right to... Mm-hmm. So, there is one possibility that this woman who hid in her aunt's house... The primary difference is, is that in the first instance, she had the right to exercise her right to say no and get back tomorrow. But in the second instance, she, she doesn't exercise that right. She instead flees without exercising So, in other words, there is a possibility... There is a possibility that in the second scenario, she took the money, grabbed the money, and went and hid in her aunt's house and refused to return it. That's a possibility. Now, why do I bring this? But wouldn't the matter issue be brought up in the fatwa then? No, not necessarily. Because there is a background to the fatwa that we could be in fact in fact, if you want to know, I did research the background of this fatwa. And the background is, in fact, that this woman was going around doing this with several men. Yeah, I mean, but this is sort of the secrets of the trade that you're not supposed because then it kills the story from the beginning. She did it with three men. She would take the mahr and run and hide in her aunt's house and keep the mahr. Well, this is why I brought it up. Some person comes to you and doesn't read to you the first part and reads to you the, the, this fatwa. Do you see what I'm getting at? Reads to you this fatwa as Islamic law. And he says, Sister Ibn Taymiyyah says, I have a right to force. You have to learn to ask the question, am I getting the full story or not? That's the whole point. What's the context? Yeah. Okay, but why would he then force her to go back to her husband? Why couldn't he, why couldn't the law be 
she so that's doesn't return the money. So that is the love. Yeah, that's the whole point. If, if she doesn't say, yeah, that's that not a right kind of lesson. Well, order makes me it's prostitution. No, mm. the, but the whole point is that if you don't know the laws, then people can change what you think and they. Whether Ibn Taymiyyah was right or wrong, that's beside the point. That's quite beside the point. I mean, we could, you could agree with him or disagree with him, whether he was wise in what he said or not. He thought, for whatever reasons, that the best way to get this woman to stop doing what she's doing, because it's not, it's not a crime, in other words, it's not an offense that you can punish for, is to say, okay, fine, you're going to play this game, then you've got to act as a wife. And he, Ibn Taymiyyah, evidently, was convinced that this is the right solution. That is beside the point. That is his opinion, and he is entitled to his opinion as well as you are entitled to your opinion. The point is exactly that. That even if Ibn Taymiyyah reached the wrong decision, even if Ibn Taymiyyah states something clearly, one, there's a possibility he's right, and there's a possibility he's wrong, Two is that there is a possibility we don't know the context and we don't know the circumstances. Three is the possibility that there are other rules of law that must be considered in considering this point. And consequently, the whole point of this exercise is not whether Ibn Taymiyyah was correct or not. I don't care. The point of this exercise is how do you deal with a text, as we said. How do you deal with the written word? Now, note here the, this, this footnote. But getting back to your first story, uh, there seems to be a very clear relationship between consummation and money. Mahat. Yeah. So that still holds. I mean, if you, the, would, I, don't want, I don't want this to become too legalistic, because then we'll get into law, and the law of consummation and the law of mahar, and then I'll tell you, and I, and I mean, I, I'll, I could cut the discussion short and just tell you this, that the law is, among all the schools, is that the woman, in, as long as the woman can return the mahr and refuse to consummate the marriage, and then there is an annulment, except for the Hanbali school. And in fact, Ibn Taymiyyah himself, despite of what he says in the first paragraph, Later on, in his other books, does not, does not agree that the woman has a right to refuse. Okay? So in other words, when he claims that all the schools agree with him, all the schools don't agree with him. And this is, this is, but this is a more subtle and, and a higher level point. That when do you really know, when someone says, or when is this really an ijma, or when is it simply claimed for authority? But I don't want to get this because I, you, can't, you, you can't overload the system with information and maintain your sanity. I mean, I, I, I have to keep in mind the... So the law is, uh, other than the Hanbali school, as long as she returns the mahr, she does not have to consummate the marriage. Now, as to forcible intercourse, that's a different matter, and that's a different issue, and you can ask me about it tomorrow, because I want to bring it up when there is the, the, the full thing. Now, Ibn Taymiyyah, we get from this, is a little bit of 
And anyway, those of you who know Ibn Taymiyyah, I mean, who's, who, who here ever read anything by Ibn Taymiyyah? Okay, what's your impression of Ibn Taymiyyah when it comes to women? ultra-conservative, but not only that, he didn't like them very much. I mean, quite bluntly, he never married. Not that he didn't uh, like them, he felt very threatened by them, I thought. Well, uh, no, he felt that he pretty much threatened, I agree, and a lot of men who don't like women are threatened, that, that is sort of the fact. But because he's a jurist, and I have to respect jurists, and I always honor and revere jurists, regardless of who they are and what they say, I will use the respectful terms of saying just he didn't like them very much. Uh, in, in my mezhab, jurists are the inheritors of the prophets. And you disagree with them, but you never insult them. Now, of course, you guys can do whatever you want, as long as you don't insult me. Um, now, Ibn Taymiyyah never married, and he was once given a slave girl, which he never touched. And she went and object and complained to the Qadi that this guy never touches me. And the Qadi ordered him, you're not doing your rights towards this woman, you've got to give her to someone who will. So he went and he gave her to one of his students or something like that, and, and so on. So we get a sense of who Ibn Taymiyyah was when it came to that. And by the way, in another fatwa, uh, and here uh, we don't have any minors, so it's okay. Uh, when Ibn Taymiyyah was once asked, also in his fatwa, a woman once went to him and complained to him that her husband doesn't satisfy her sexually and she wants a divorce. And he said, well, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, I want to know what is the minimum that my husband is obligated to do before I can have a divorce. And he said once every three months. As long as it's once every three months, then there is no divorce. So, all of that is read as text. And all of that are read as thoughts, as manifestations of a civilization. Now, finally, I want to go over the fact, also Ibn Taymiyyah evidently does not like women very much. He is asked the following question. Hmm. A woman came to him and said, my husband says that I have to serve him. And How these trends? Okay. My husband says that I have to serve him. I have, in other words, to clean and wash and cook and all of that. And I want to know: Is the service that I perform to my husband equal to the service that a slave is obligated to perform, and a servant is obligated to perform, or not? Then he said, so he answers in the following way. What is known amongst us, and here pay attention to the word, wording, 
what is known amongst us is that service of a woman to the husband is obligatory. But some of them said that she only owes him the minimal service, and some said she owes him service according to what is the custom of the area that she lives in. And consequently, she owes him the service according to the customs of her class status, her social status, her time period, and her locality. And this is what I believe to be correct. And I believe, Ibn Taymiyyah says, that that the amount of service that a wife is obligated to perform to a husband varies according to variety of the circumstances. So the Bedouin has different The service of a Bedouin is not like the service of a villager. And the service, the service of a strong woman is, like not, is not like the service of a weak woman. And the service of a knowledgeable woman is not like the service of an ignorant woman. Now, one, we notice here that Ibn Taymiyyah starts the response by what? What is known amongst us? The response starts by what is known amongst us. I know at this point you're getting exhausted and, you know... Okay. So, he starts the fatwa itself by saying what? Not by... Not by did he cite any hadith? Did he cite any Quranic verse? In fact, if he would cite a sunnah, it's a sunnah of what? No, the sunnah. What does the sunnah? What did the Prophet do? He used to sew, right? Cook and clean. He doesn't cite any of that. What he cites is what is accustomed amongst us. Consequently, as you will learn, inshallah, tomorrow and after tomorrow, he is putting you on notice. This is a custom based fatwa. And he is quite explicit in saying, it changes according to circumstances, the time, the education, and the class. But this is coming from the same faqih that doesn't like women very much. And this is why I wanted to share the fatwa with you. It has nothing to do with conservatism or liberalism. The Islamic civilization was, is very rich, and here I am winding up. The Islamic civilization, as I said, I'm going to finish exactly at 11 o'clock. The Islamic civilization is extremely rich. What it produced is a homogeny of complexity and diversity. Stereotypes and categorizations are not going to get you anywhere. An attempt to find conservatives, liberals, versus this or that, it will only render you in the idiocy of modernism and postmodernism. 
the Western civilization and modernism and postmodernism is a tagging civilization. In other words, it's a civilization that bases its very means of production. And here I'm not, I'm not uh, saying that, oh, you know, revolution or anything like that. What I'm saying is understand what is going on. <coughs> it's a civilization that is based on production on, in, on, on, it, on simplifying the means of production, maximizing production, on efficiency, and even on maximizing means of understanding and efficiency even in knowledge. And consequently, the method, the methodology of knowledge pursued, for example in the United States as opposed to Germany or France, the United States and Britain as opposed to Germany and France, is an attempt to find categorizations, to find schools and, and discover classes and discovers clear dividing lines where you can sort of say, aha, this belongs to that and this belongs to this and this belongs to that. And it is part of the whole economic structure. My argument to you, that's fine. If you want to live your life like that, that's your choice. But if you want to understand the complexity of Islamic civilization like that, you will not succeed. It doesn't fit. And that is why a lot of Orientalists sound so idiotic. Some of them who managed to capture the complexity are very good, like Barbara Johansson in Germany, or uh, like Michael Cook, even though he has some crazy ideas. But anyway, he's very good. He captures the complexity in the civilization, the richness, the diversity, even within the individual. One faqih, just because you know his opinion over one issue, you cannot predict his opinion on another issue. Because no one could predict that Ibn Taymiyyah would say that a woman's service to his, her husband would vary according to the culture and time. This sounds like a wacko liberal's talking, not Ibn Taymiyyah. When people speak this way, they say, oh, well, they're liberal. They don't understand Islam. Now, I don't claim to understand Islam. What I've done is I brought Islamic texts and shared them with you. You go figure out what Islam says. You go figure out Islam. I can figure it out for myself, and I will keep it to myself. But that is all that I hope for. Before we conclude, I want to leave you with a note. You've seen the broad spectrum of complexity over the issue of women and Islam. I didn't use any slogans. I didn't use any rhetoric. I didn't cite any of the early stuff. Now let us get an example of the modern discourse. This is Bin Bad, huh? Fatwa. Bin Bad? Sorry. He was asked whether, this is actually the Fatwa itself, whether women driving a car is halal or haram. <laughs> he responded, it is haram because it leads to corruptions 
that are obvious. Among them is Khalwa. Among them is Sufur, immodesty. Among them is mixing with men without an excuse. Among them is committing the forbidden. Among them is committing the forbidden. And that is why all of this, the Sharia has forbidden what leads to haram. And so what leads to haram is haram. And that is why Allah Azza wa Jal and the Prophet ordered women to stay in their homes and to preserve the hijab and not to show their beauties because all of that is corruption. And then he cites several Quranic verses to that effect. The Quranic verses that you usually hear. And then he says, no man has ever been in isolation with a woman without the shaitan being a third. This is a hadith. So the sharia has always forbidden what leads to haram. And what leads to haram is haram. He's being somewhat repetitive here. And made it, and made it punishable by the most um, uh, strict of punishments. And among those things that lead to the most definite corruption and immorality is womanly driving cars. And this cannot, and this is rather obvious. And it is rather the ignorance of people with the ahkam al-sharia, with the laws of sharia, and with the rules of Islam, and with the morality of the Quran that leads them to follow the ways of dalal and error. Error, um, um, whatever. And that is why a lot of those who are sick in their hearts and who love corruption and who love looking at women go on talking about this matter because what they want is the opportunity to enjoy looking at women. As the Prophet has said, I have not left a greater test to men after me more than women. And he used to be asked, the Prophet ﷺ, he says, what is the best thing that is going to come after you? And he says, such and such and such. And he says, And he says then, and what is the worst that will come to me? He says, people who invite to messages that sound like they are just, but these people are unjust and the seekers of corruption on earth. And consequently, I am imploring every Muslim to, for, to protect himself from corruption and to not spread the evil of women driving in cars which would lead to a certain haram. Now, this is fatwa. Okay. Now, there is a fatwa that
With Bin Baz, uh, they're just uh, basically whenever he feels like it or... No, 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 no. That show is Ahran. Uh, okay, then. What? Excuse me? Excuse me? Uh, you mean um, in Islamic civilization or now? <laughs> no, in Islamic civilization, basically, that you have ijazas from scholars that have ijazas. In other words, you're very certified. If you're not certified, it's like exactly, exactly like the practice of law. If you don't pass the bar and you don't have a license, you can't do it. And, but at that time, their license was ijazah. Nowadays, it's basically whoever the government allows to be the spokesman. Okay. Okay, before doing that, I, I want to get rid with the fatawa of Ibn, of Ibn Baz and then sort of conclude. He is also asked about now. I uh, listen. It, uh, my, our sheikhs and I think it's 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 not. I think it is a hadith that la hayafidin. There's no embarrassment in religion. And as I told you, our sheikhs would talk about the most embarrassing things in the world with a straight face, men and women sitting there, and not even as much as a smirk or a smile on their life, uh, on their on their life, on their and, well, that's sort of Freudian slip. <laughs> but anyway. He has asked also, and I don't, I don't, I seem to have misplaced it, but anyway, I've, I have this fatwa memorized. It's in the same book, so I mean, you can check it. Uh, for the tape, this is Majmu'a Fatawa bin Baz, volume four, volume four, and uh, volume three. Go check it. He's asked if wearing Ibra is haram or halal? If you're wearing what? Ibra. Ibra. Referred to as a suntian in his terminology. Now, he responds to that fatwa by saying that, and here exactly is his wording, because this one I've, I've taught so much that I've memorized. If it is to give the false, no, I'm sorry. Sorry, that's wrong. W some women wear the bra to give the false impression of larger chests. And that is a form of deceit and consequently that is haram. But if it is worn for medical reasons, that is halal. Now, I'm using bin Baz because I, I think that's the other extreme. Then I have a fatwa about ikhtilat, which he basically says is absolutely forbidden. No man and woman should ever be in any mixed company. And then finally a fatwa about whether a woman can work and, and can go out in the street without wearing um, the abaya or this cloth. And he says a woman can neither work nor go out in the street without the abaya. Um, she can work in her home, of course, like if she wants to do pottery or something like that. Now, the interesting thing about Bin Baz and his fatwa is, look at the, well, you can't see, anyway. 
The style of the fatwa is structured in a certain fashion. Talk, Quranic verse. Talk, Quranic verse. Talk, Hadith, talk. The Quranic verse, when you are approaching it, you ask, are any of them on point? Do any of them specifically address a bra or a car or work? No. What is he doing at that point? He is deducting. And he is using certain methods of deduction. Consequently, a deduction can be met by what? Counter-deduction. The only difference, in my view, between the discourse of this age and the discourse of the past age is that this discourse in the contemporary age seems to be, again, and I emphasize this point, again, and I emphasize this point, a knee-jerk reaction discourse. Basically, what I've said again and again, it's a Coca-Cola machine type of mentality or hamburger knowledge type of mentality. You want a quick fix and a quick answer. You want to put the coin in, press the button, and the coke comes out, a ready-made solution. You solve the problem. No points of view, no arguments, no schools, no give and take, no debate. There is right and wrong, black and white, Islam is known, kufr is known, what I am saying is, this is, in fact, in my view, a postmodern or modern mutation and corruption of Islam because Islam was never like that. And the form of halaqa is over exactly at 11 o'clock. <coughs>
Um, and, and I know that among the circles of learning, among the shiuch and the halakat, uh, things were never black and white. Mm -hmm. And it was always a discourse. And I didn't teach myself this material. I was taught it. I can't claim credit for the ingenuity of going and discovering it. Um, but I also know that as I was growing up, political reality seemed to be more and more polarized. And camps seemed to be more and more divided. Um, as the economic and political situation became more desperate, the patience with argument and debate seemed to lessen and lessen. And we had a rule, in fact, in the Halakas, that you don't debate what, you don't reveal what you learn to the am, to the general public. In other words, we would not share the knowledge uh, with the masses. It is only exclusive to those who get the licenses. Um, and we and we are told quite specifically it's because the political and economic circumstances are going to corrupt the knowledge. And the circumstances are such that whatever you teach is going to be abused and misused for political ends, not for the sake of any objective truth or any objective thought. So there we all took, took an oath of silence within our countries, I mean in Egypt. What shocked me is when I came to the United States, and the political reality of American Muslims is not such. What shocked me is the vast amount no, let me rephrase. I found Muslims in the United States more stupid than anything I've seen back home. More idiotic, incapable of thought, incapable of knowledge. What kind of Muslims? Are these Muslims that came from or Muslims that grew up in? Doesn't matter. You want, you want the, the truthful answer? Yeah. Muslims that came from Definitely Muslims that grew up in, as well because they are carrying the cultural baggage of their parents. I'm not seeing any improvement in the quality of knowledge or the quality of thought. And it's, in fact, you are a minority. I mean, you are an extreme minority. You are not a majority. Some of the things that, that would be discussed very leisurely back home I've learned to come to the United States and be afraid to mention. I mean, even something like clapping. I discovered for the first time in my life when I came to the United States that in an Islamic conference, if you clap, it's a catastrophe. First time I discovered that if you shake the hands of a woman in an Islamic conference, it would be a major catastrophe is here in the United States. In Egypt, some did it, some didn't. We knew we respected those who didn't and those who did. I mean, it was understood. The first time I hear that it is a major disaster if you listen to any form of music, including classical music, in any Islamic arena, it's a major disaster is here in the States. I remember our sheikhs used to recite poetry, we used to memorize poetry, and my sheikhs used to like Um Kalsum, 
and sit there and say, oh yes, Ummat al-Sum al-Abdul Wahab and Najib al-Rihani and what they said, and they would sit there and, yes, salam, ya aini, ya and they would sit there and listen to all the stuff. And these were sheikhs who are much more, I mean, the, the people here compared to them know nothing. These are sheikhs who have licenses, who have ijazas, who, who, who know this material inside out, I come here and I discover that Islamic in Islamic arenas, you turn on some soft Hawaiian music in the background as you eat, and suddenly all hell breaks loose, and it is a major disaster. I've discovered in the United States that no woman can enter into a mosque without basically looking at the floor and walking next to a wall and hiding and if she as much as try to sort of more or less stand up or say anything in most mosques, it's a disaster. Now, I don't know how the heck Muslims in the United States got this way. This is only Arab mosques we're talking about. That's not the same. Might be or might not. This is my experience. I mean, I've been doing this since 1982. And my experience has drawn me more and more into isolation. I mean, you can see the burnout and the bitterness in the way I'm talking. Yes, there are exceptions. Yes, in the LA, LA mosque, for example, I see that. Yes, in Amina, I see interactions and so on. But and I, don't, I won't concede it's Arab mosques, in the Pakistani mosques as well. Uh, there's, there's absolutely no difference in that regard. The fact of the matter is, is that and, most importantly, the so-called scholars here in the United States, the people, in, and this is why uh, the people who dominate the Islamic discourse tend to be um, demagogues. I mean, there are scholars, but not too many. So, um, it's, it's, I mean, it's really your fate, it's especially the use. Uh, my job is to come to bring back the roots, to attempt to get you excited a little bit about your roots, about your heritage, and to tell you in very blunt fashion what I think, what my assessment, I might be completely wrong. Things might be very cheerful. It might be that in 10 years, everyone here in the United States is going to convert and we're going to create the Khilaf again. It might be that California is right, it's just a matter of a few years and California is going to be the third Khilafah. It might be. I'm just giving you my own perspective. And so it might be that I'm complete, and it might be that women here in the United States are completely liberated and there is no oppression and they're all free. I'm giving you my own perspective. And this is my perspective and it's for you to assess it and then decide where, where you want to do it. What? It's a methodology. It's a way of thinking. Uh, those of you who have taken to heart tonight, for example, even though it's a little bit of a little bit arrogant of me, but those who know me from the past and all that, you know, that stuff, um, won't be able to think about the same issue again in the same way. And you will see that. And even if you cannot bring the evidence. Bring the evidence. Your mind does not function exactly the same way. I'm not saying everyone. I'm saying those who fully understood the purpose of it.
make a library, which he didn't, by the way. And I compiled a 15-page bibliography on the issue of...